Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. Now today, I am very privileged to have the fantastic Simon Moffat of the Cyber Hut. Um, I could introduce him, but uh, his list of credentials go on quite significantly, so I'll let him do his own intro. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for having me on, James. Great to be here. Um, I'm not sure I've, I can live up to the uh, expectations of uh, be, being so good, I guess. But um, yeah, Simon Moffat, um, founder of an organization called the Cyber Hut, been in the, I guess, cyber world since 2001, so that's 20, 22 years, which when I say that out loud is a little bit, a little bit daunting. Uh, I'm only 26, to be honest, so that's, that's quite, a, quite an achievement, but um, no, <laughs> two, two decades doing this stuff, which is, it is amazing, really, because any length of time in any technology sector, you see so many things change, both people and technologies and uh, priorities alter. So I've been fortunate enough to really focus exclusively, really, on identity and access management, so you know, authentication, authorization, access control, anything of that ilk, really. And I've seen many changes. I've worked in industry, worked in the consultancy space, worked for a large period for, for software vendors making um, making software in authentication, authorization, identity management, identity governance, identity analytics, a bit of AI, a bit of ML, which I've been really, really fortunate to do. And then 2021, I've been running a business called the Cyber Huts, which is essentially looking and, and tracking all of the trends in the cyber world, specifically within, within identity and access management, acting as a, it's like a buy-side advocate, if you like, analyzing vendors, looking at patterns, looking at trends, standards, helping release research and buyer's guides and um, reports on on what's happening really in, in the global identity space, which again, is I feel quite privileged to do this stuff. You know, I, I get to, interview and work with different vendors, understand what they're building and why. And I think it's, it's just great to see cyber in general becoming a real high priority. I think people now really realize that it's, it's important to secure personal identifiable information, to secure ourselves, to secure your, your online banking, employees, staff. And that, that is, is great to see all of the sort of innovation in change there. And really the cyber puts trying to help the buy side navigate the, the complexities of this ever-changing world. Fantastic. So take us back in time to, was it 20, 2001, you said, when you got into it? Long time ago, yeah. I mean, before the internet, I guess, I sort of rolled out of university. 21, didn't really have a good plan of what I wanted to do with my career. I did economics, actually, at university, which um really unrelated to the cyber world. Couldn't be further apart, really. But it gave me a good understanding of business and how we make decisions in the business world and, and why we, we do certain things. And I rolled out of university at 21, big student loan, big, big student debt, as, as most people do. And I think I, I left the university on the Friday and think on the Monday, I started a temporary job like you do. Take any job that comes along. I took a three-month temporary job 
working for a large insurance company. And essentially, they were having a, they were doing a, a project for their mainframe identity. So you'll get this, like tw- 21 years of old. Mainframe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was obviously a job nobody wanted. All of their mainframe, they had 36,000 mainframe identities in this, in this insurance company. And essentially, they'd run out of IDs. So there was like a five-digit ID which people were, were logging in with and essentially they'd run out. So what they were having to do, take the existing IDs that people were using, essentially copy them into a new format so that they'd have a bigger address space essentially for, for new users to to be created. So why not get a load of very cheap 21-year-olds to come in, do some really boring IT security administration for, for a three-month period. Mm-hmm. It was great. And, and three months turned into six months, as these projects do, which turned into 12 months. It ended up doing it for about a year. And that was my first foothold really into anything to do with technology and cyber and identity and access management. And it was a really good apprenticeship, if you like, you know, doing things by hand. There's no automation. There was no um, systems. There's certainly no AI and ML and, and anything mm. of this this ilk. And it was it was a really it was a steep learning curve, but it was it was great. It was a really good foundation. And then essentially, I spent about four or five years that insurance company in house. I moved on to do some directory services work in in Navel using Navel. Um, NDS, Novell, oh, oh, Netware, admin, and, and all that stuff. That was fabulous as well. You know, looking after two or three hundred servers in a in a sort of distributed um, a distributed server farm, which was which is great. Great again, a great experience. Really, you know, before automation, you're having to to visit sites to do upgrades and, and manage the directory and, and this sort of stuff, which was which was fabulous. So it was a really good sort of four to five year apprenticeship. Really, you know doing things like being on call and doing standby and upgrades and, and really understanding how sort of security infrastructure works in a, in a big company, really. And it was, it was fascinating to, to see that and, and, and learn from people who have been doing it obviously a lot longer than myself. And then from there, I, I spent 15 years working with software vendors. I was in the sort of mid-2000s, 2007 2008, something like this, I joined a company called Vayu, really, really small startup, a US-based startup doing some really quite sort of esoteric, specialized role-based access control work, um, role-based access control, identity audit, identity um, sort of certification work where you'd, you'd go into large companies, typically big financial services companies that they needed to get a handle on on their access control, really, you know, who had access to what and why, very much driven by sort of compliance initiatives, really, things like Sarbanes-Oxley, PCI DSS, mm. um, a lot of other US regulation as well. So you really had to prove, as, as a regulated industry, you had good understanding of who had access to which systems, why did they have access to these systems. But I, I did that for a number of years and I sort of went on a acquisition journey for like I the, the company I was at value at the time was acquired by Sun Microsystems so I guess a lot, lot of listeners will remember Sun from the days of Java and Solaris and all of the, the server hardware which powered the dot-com boom and subsequent bust um, of course and and uh, Sun had a really huge portfolio of software and, and the, the, the startup I was at got acquired into there. So I sort of went from working at a company that had 70 people to suddenly one that had, I don't know what Sun had, 40, 50,000 staff or something, quite a 
of change. And I was at Sun for a couple of years. I ran the European technical side of, of their Sun Role Manager product. And then they were then acquired by Oracle. So the, the, the sort of shark kept coming along and, and buying up and, and getting bigger and bigger. So I went from a startup into Sun Microsystems. And then Oracle came along um, and bought out Sun Microsystems back in 2010, I think that would have been something like this. I guess the interesting thing there was Sun Microsystems had a load of security software, but as did Oracle. And obviously there was there was overlap and there was a bit of conflict and competition and a lot of products on, on, on sort of both sides were end of life, I guess, probably more so on the Sun side because Oracle was the acquirer. So there was a lot of technology, good technology, which, which Sun Microsystems had, which just you know, went, went by the wayside essentially. And a lot of my colleagues were sort of, you know, made redundant or whatever. And I was at Oracle for probably about another two years um, running um, something called Oracle Identity Analytics, which was um, the sort of rebranded Sun products. Um, again, looking at things like role-based access control and, and access review and identity analytics and such. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then I, I left there and joined the sort of freelancing world. And then I, I spent another eight years at another vendor called Forge Rock, and they were a, another identity access management vendor. Essentially, they came out of the ashes of Sun Microsystems, if you like, and um, they, they'd taken a lot of the Sun Microsystems um, open source software and essentially just used that as the foundation to build some new capabilities around sort of zero trust identity and, and uh, single sign-on and the whole sort of next generation of identity and access management. I was fortunate enough, yeah, I spent a good eight, eight and a half years in, in that space, managed to, to write a book in that time on on consumer identity as well, which I think is, is sort of now become quite a popular popular area where we, we're trying to do things online, so things like online banking or maybe uh, retail or you know maybe buy a Netflix film or whatever. We're doing so much stuff online and all of that has a obviously a security and identity element to it. So I, I spent a year or two researching a book on that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, I feel quite I feel quite privileged really to 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 still be doing this stuff and, and hopefully providing a bit of value still after all these years it's quite interesting actually because i mean you know uh, i started my career yeah a little bit further back you know not by much though i mean i've been in for now about 25 years and the tool sets we had back then were nothing compared to to the vendors and the tools and the solutions we have in this space now i mean back when i first got in it was a little bit of av firewall if you were lucky I saw the advent of mail checkers because, uh, yeah, I remember some of the stuff you used to catch some of the employees looking at uh, via email and on the internet back then, and that was in the Wild West of the internet. And uh, now, you know, we've got all kinds of products, all kinds of tools. We've got threat intelligence. We've got GRC tools that aren't ridiculously cumbersome and, and what have you, and it's... You know, we've seen a lot of technological change in that time as well, and a lot of change in the way that we apply security. And I mean, what are the major changes that you've seen and, and you've perceived with your particular discipline? Because, I mean, I do remember a time, God forbid, going back to the, to the deep, dark depths where people used to share passwords all the time, and you'd be saying, please don't do that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> what have you seen in that time? I mean, you mentioned a lot of vendors, I mean, do you echo sort of 
that change or do you see it from a different different perspective? There's, there's, there's been so many things change and I think it's, you're absolutely right, 20 years ago, no way did we have the technology that we have today. It, it, was, it, was, it was much simpler, simpler world, simpler times, I guess. But I think in a way that, that helped, actually, I think it helped security because it, it wasn't as complex. I think one, one of the biggest A lot less issues, to go wrong. <laughs> there, is, there is, isn't it? I think, it's, I think you know, today, 2023, I think the sort of sub-industries developing around uh, identifying misconfiguration in systems, especially in cloud systems, which are no fault of their own. They are complex. They are complicated systems to set up infrastructure, to set up uh, permissions and identities. And you've got all of that, that, all the mechanics of that to, to manage. But there's a whole host of misconfiguration there. You, you can get something up and running in Amazon or in Google or in Microsoft Azure or whatever. Is it the right way of doing it? You know, you often get something working you don't quite know how and the right applications or people have access to it. Then you step away from it and you're like, oh, I don't want to touch it now because it's working. And often yeah. it, it may well be, you know, you may have identities that have too many permissions or maybe they just, they have, it's enough to get them working, but maybe not in the correct way. So I think today the level of stuff you need is is really high. And I think there's a, there's a visibility issue, there's the misconfiguration angle. So it's not always a better thing to have more stuff going on. So I think, okay, in 2001, absolutely, there was some pretty naive practices. You know, you, you mentioned sharing passwords it happened all the time. Um, as you did, people would pick poor passwords. There would be no multi-factor authentication. If somebody left an organization, those accounts were probably never disabled or switched off. Uh, so there was, there was really you know, quite poor hygiene, if you like, quite, quite bad practice. But I think... Equally, there were some benefits to maybe the, the, the attack surface was maybe a little bit smaller. Maybe, mm. I'm not necessarily saying it's better in that respect. But I think definitely we have more kit today. We have more software, more complexity. I think organizations are inherently more complicated. You know, they are part of, of much bigger supply chains. It's very rare that you pick any organization today, whether it's, I don't know, a retailer or a manufacturer or insurance or whatever that doesn't rely on a whole host of other organizations to make something work. And I think all of that supply chain angle just introduces a whole host of, of different attack vectors and different entry points into the world of malicious activity and data theft and whatever else. So I think we are, the level of complexity is just, it's exponentially grown in 20 years for sure. It's absolutely correct as well, because, I mean, it is weird. I remember it being relatively simple to secure an environment because we didn't really have a lot to secure. Then it became more complicated, but it became easier because then it wasn't using terminals where we had to try and figure out what the exact terminology for the, for the string of characters was. And it went into wizards, which meant we had to go back to terminals to do some of the stuff that we really wanted to do because we were a little bit old school back then. And then it kind of cloud came along and that really kind of changed the world. I mean, like you, I remember being part of the poor, poor guys and gals that used to have to open up the rack and pull out the large server. There was no small, thin servers back then. You know, it was all large and it took four of you to pick it up. And now, you know, you can have hundreds of those servers in relatively tiny, tiny spaces compared to what we used to. But one of the things I, I definitely wanted to pick up on was 
from my perspective, it has gone a little bit crazy when it comes to the as a service functions of of some of the software that we're using the key software. I mean, back in the day, it was you bought it, you installed it. Maybe there'd be a database you'd have to set up or something similar. And then you would just kind of update it with updates as it came along. And maybe you had support, obviously you had support function if you needed to, to, to call in and find out why a fat client wasn't working or a thin client wasn't working or some, something wasn't working over Citrix. Now it's all delivered via the internet, which has made things eminently easier. But from a security standpoint, it means you're, as you, as you mentioned before, your attack vectors, you know, malicious acts. I'm, I'm no longer so much worried about the organization I'm there in dealing with at that time. I'm more concerned about the second, third, fourth generation of third party suppliers of third party suppliers. And it's, I'm seeing a lot of movement in the how do we manage this third party mishmash? Because your, yours and I's job. You know, it was a case of what's going on within our perimeter, what's going with the few people who remotely a- attach or the remote office that, that that comes in. And then it went to cloud and we were like, right, okay, now we're, we're a little bit worried about the cloud because it's housed on somebody else's stuff. And then all of a sudden now it's like, boom, we've got a million providers providing a million things to a million different people in the business. And I don't know about you, but in some of my customers, their software asset registers certainly <laughs> Certainly, are larger than I remember them being. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you, you have that angle around just trying to get your arms around what you're managing. I think n- number one, and, and there's a lack of visibility. I think of of what that infrastructure looks like, even if it's a, a virtual infrastructure. And then I think to overlay on top of that, you then have the sort of responsibility model. As you say, if you go back twenty years, you have a perimeter and you had the, the big bad internet, or maybe you had some sort of like federation or inter-business communications, then you've got your safe, private internal VLANs, which weren't safe and private at all. But at least you had the, the modicum of visibility and control. And we did this, and they did that, and there's quite distinct trust boundaries. Whereas today, I think that's much, much more blurred. You'd have a, say you leverage some Amazon stuff, you may then leverage some Google Cloud infrastructure for your servers or compute power, but then you may then have SaaS applications as well, software as a service, which you have no control over. You're essentially you know, buying an API or buying access to a, an application or an outcome. So the, the sort of responsibility model is, is much more shared. Um, but that introduces a, a lot more complexity as well around what does the, the cloud service provider do versus the consumer of that cloud service? Who does what when things go wrong? Uh, mm. Who's ultimately responsible for the data? Who's the data or for, owner? Or yeah, for the identities this. involved? And <laughs> so the boundaries are much more blurred and virtual. And there's a, there's a lot more sort of handoff, if you like, from you know, somebody logging in to access um, I don't know, a spreadsheet or something, there's a, there's a lot more steps involved as to who's doing what, when and why. And I think those responsibility boundaries, I think are quite tough these days if you're a CISO or a CIO trying to sort of work out, we do this, we're in control of this. And actually this, this SaaS application, we don't have the visibility into it. We're paying a, whatever, 50 grand a month or 50 grand a year for a service. We don't really get to see the logs. We don't get to see how it's operating and how it's working. And yeah, there's sort of service level agreements and there's trust sort of anchors and things there. But it can be quite complex and quite difficult, I think, to see who's doing what and who owns what and who has the responsibility for keeping that stuff 
up and running. And I think, um, yeah, that, that brings that complexity, brings a lot of issues with things like visibility and, and responsibility, I guess. But I, I, I don't see that improving either, actually, any any time soon. I think organizations, they just want to outsource a lot of risk and, and probably quite rightly so, you know, leverage the cloud, leverage specialist providers, why, why would you want to have a big server rack full of HP or Compaq or Dell hardware, right? Oh, when you can just say, <laughs> let's just go and give it to somebody else to worry about and I'll rent some sort of computing power and stuff. So I, I don't um, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's, if I was in that situation, I would do exactly the same. But equally, it does introduce some responsibility boundaries, which I think are quite complex to navigate, I guess. It's frightening, actually, because there's a lot of juggling of liability. It's like, who's liable for what? So you've got the data owners, then you've got the people looking after that data, but then you've got their people as well and, and their third-party service providers. And it, it can get quite messy. And with cyber liability insurance, dare I say it, in the state that it is at the moment, which is, well, who knows where it is at the moment. Every time I, I check up on it, the situation has changed, whether it's Lloyds of London wanting to change wording because things aren't working from a from a, a wording perspective, or be it dare I say it, a very large organisation winning a one point I think was, was it one point six one point six billion pound or dollar case against their insurers. It's getting really really tough to to figure out what to do, and I'm seeing a lot of I'm seeing a lot of intelligence companies coming out into this space as well, like third party intelligence companies and. Some of them are really, really good. A lot of them are really good, but it's not giving you kind of the full picture. It's almost giving you a, a panacea saying, oh, look, everything looks fine from the outside world. And it's like, but as an InfoSec person, I don't care about what the perception is. I actually want to know <laughs> where they are. Yeah, yeah. In the insurance ones, it's fascinating, actually. We've done a bit of research on this one, like more from an identity perspective and more around you know, what, what the cyber insurance companies sort of are asking their, their clients to do. You, know, you have to do these certain things before we will oh, yeah. under, underwrite and insure you. And it's like, you know, you have to have multi-factor authentication. It has to be rolled out to at least 80% of your users and this and this and this. And I think there's, I think there's just so much uncertainty. I think organizations... They're scared. They're not. They don't really know whether their security controls will cover them if they get attacked. But equally, the, ins the insurance companies are going, "Well, crikey, how on earth do we measure an organisation for their competency or their controls or their level of cyber maturity?" So there's, there's a lot of uncertainty on on either side. So the insurance guys are going, "Well, you need to have all these things in place. You need to have a CISO and a data protection officer. You need to have whatever next generation firewalls and audits and MFA and everything else." to you know at least give them a, a level of confidence the organization is, is, is competent enough I, I think both sides are probably a little bit in in the wrong in, in that respect in in the sense of it's quite hard i think still to measure the level of cyber maturity in organizations i think there's a, a good quote and i don't quite know who, who this is attributed to but there's typically two types of organizations those who know they've been hacked and those who don't you know, essentially saying everyone's been hacked at, at some stage, especially if you are a large enterprise with something worth hacking, you've probably got the bad guys in your network already. Um, and, you know, cyber insurance isn't, isn't going to help in that respect, really. But I do think there's, there's that, um, I guess, back to the responsibility angle. 
you want the insurance so you can get some cash back, you know, so you can at least say to your shareholders, yeah, okay, we have been breached, but we've done as well as we can and we, we have got a, a bit of a safety net there to look at investigations or, you know, apply some controls retrospectively. But yeah, I think the insurance landscape is, it is quite a difficult one to navigate. And I, I don't see things like premiums uh, stabilizing anytime soon like they do with cars. I think it's, uh, I've not had to purchase cyber insurance for a large company, but I imagine it fluctuates probably year by year, the cost of, of that and how much gets paid out if you actually needed it would probably be a little bit uh, different as well, I guess. And it, and it is tough, you know. I mean, it's it's like I've read a number of the things that they ask organisations and, and I don't think it's enough, but they, 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 I don't think, you know, they're insurers, they don't really understand what they're asking for. I mean, asking for a bit of AV and a firewall and a CISO, it doesn't make a defence in depth, you know, but equally they're insurers. But it's interesting because I think, you know, this inability to rely on insurance for your cyber aspects of security is kind of driving people more towards their defense in depth and reevaluating it quite – I mean, it's, it's strange because it's like we had the cloud thing, which really started to change the way that we consume our technology. Then we had the kind of as-a-service thing, which really started pushing – in that same direction. And then we had the the lockdowns where all of a sudden nobody was working in the office and seemingly nobody really went back to the office in any great amounts. And it's really been pushing and pushing and pushing towards this kind of third-party thing. And uh, from an identity perspective, it's it's trying to tie everything in and then you've got single sign-on as well, which is run by another company that you're not – it's not a server that you really control. It's a service that you're relying that they have tied off on their back end as big as they may well be, who shall may remain very, very nameless. It's, 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 it's kind of odd to be in this space at the moment. It's good fun, don't get me wrong, but Christ, we're seeing so much change as well. <laughs> it's just like, where do you think this is going to be in the next five years? I mean, what are your – obviously, we've got artificial intelligence that everybody's harping on about at the moment, but where do you think we're going to be in five years? What do you think the, the, the landscape's going to kind of look like? Oh, it's, it's, it's a really tough one. I think um, it's, it, the cyber hook would act as analysts, I guess. And, and it's a question we get asked quite a lot is, you know, CISOs and CIOs that they, where we're heading, you know, what, what should we invest in or what should we worry about and which technologies should we get rid of, which should we invest in? And it's, it's quite hard to, to give definitive answers, but certainly there are definitely some emerging patterns start, starting to, to take hold. I think the pandemic was interesting because I think it was a real, it was a global event, number one, and it impacted everything, not just a particular sector or a particular geography. So that, that really altered how businesses did work. And, and by that, I mean, we, on one hand, you had the home working thing. So suddenly it was right, wow, we, we normally had a, a secure office environment, scrap that everyone's at home, everyone's on unsecured Wi-Fi, everyone's on either a laptop, which may be work issued, or a, or a bring your own device. And it was suddenly a huge a world of pain, really, for many organizations, because how on earth can you secure that, give people and staff the access they need to the systems? Maybe a lot of these systems you can't access from home, and issues with VPNs, which were seen as legacy and unscalable. So there's a lot of technical problems to deal with, and a lot of people problems, because 
Mm. Nobody was that comfortable with working from home if maybe that was something new. So a lot of change occurred there. I think what happened since then, I think many organizations think, well, actually, we're not quite sure what the future looks like. And the pandemic amplified the need to be agile, to have you know, modularity in your systems, not be too rigid, not be too, you know, big monolithic IDPs or single sign-on or VPNs, really try and break that stuff down and be agile, be responsive, try and and leverage um, things in in a much more fine-grained way, if you like. So if there is another pandemic or maybe another, I don't know, World War III or something huge that happens, we're all a little bit more reflexive and we we can respond to it better as organizations, I think is a, a meta pattern. That is quite interesting. What does that mean really from cyber? Well, I think clearly cyber is a top priority, maybe even more so than it was three or four years ago. And by that, I mean, you know, people are quite familiar with protecting uh, their own identities, PII protection, I, people are aware of like hackers, you know, the bad guys, nation state threats. Like it's, it's quite common parlance now, you know, you've you sort of got the BBC News and most weeks, there's there's a story about hacking or nation state or something to do with cyber. So I think the awareness is a lot higher, which I think people are prepared to spend and invest in cyber technologies. I think if we maybe look at the next sort of five years, yeah, I think stuff like AI and ML will help. And I think in certain sectors, we're seeing um, the, the sort of big data problem appearing in, in lots of different parts of cyber. So things like authentication, how people log in, um, behavior monitoring, threat detection, cyber threat intelligence. These are all really huge, big, big data problems. And it's, it seems sensible to throw machine learning at that first of all, and maybe you know, generate AI models on the back of that. So I see, I do see benefit there. The flip side, of course, the bad guys have access to the same technologies they have access to chat gpt the same as we do so maybe there's a bit of a ai war i guess starting in that respect but i do think cyber is is more than just protection now i think it's become a real part of the um, sort of competitive landscape so if you are an organization say you are a retailer for example and you can leverage cyber or privacy protection in a really strong way that looks like a competitive advantage. You know, if you can build trust with your user community, build trust with your staff, show that you are relatively safe and secure, you handle customer data well, you handle credit card information securely, that's probably seen now as a bit of a competitive edge, you know, it's a competitive differentiator, which I think is is interesting. It's not just, okay, there's some security guys in the corner and they're going to say no to everything and protect everything. Hmm. It's actually, do you know what? If, if you get the security stuff right, you can probably sell more. You can share data better. You can go into joint ventures better. You can partner with people better. And that's all competitive. That, that makes you behave better as an organization. So I think purely from a, a sort of technical perspective, things like passwordless technology, I think will will definitely we'll see huge uptake in that over the next two to three years, maybe leveraging biometrics really is the standard mm. way of logging in. I think things like threat detection and response, you're looking at behaviors and tracking how people do things will improve. I think internet of things is everywhere. You know, there's devices everywhere, whether it's home automation, healthcare, wearables, manufacturing, all of that stuff is, is going to need 
security, but obviously shrunk down. So it works and fits in in edge use cases and, and in sort of tiny microcontrollers and everything else from a, a sort of cryptographic and authentication perspective. So I see lots and lots of improvements there. But I think to me, the, the top level story is cyber is really important. And it's, it's, its importance has proliferated right the way from government services and, and, and healthcare through to consumer and, and everything else. So I think there's real attention and investment here. And I think, yeah, the meta patterns are going to be things like agility, modularity, and, and making sure a lot of the sort of cyber technologies talk with each other better. I, I certainly see some of those as, as some pretty big, big meta patterns, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm going to be interested to see over the next couple of years, and it'd be interesting to get your take on this, because I know you advised certain elements of the UK uh, institution that may or may not be in charge here most of the time. There seems to be a lot of legislation coming out, a lot of, you know, we've got DORA over in, you know, Europe, we've got the code over in Bermuda and various other different jurisdictions of government institutions are starting to develop their own kind of, this is the minimum cybersecurity you must have. But as we all well know, looking at certain frameworks that may or may not be out there at the moment, you know, I'm, I, for instance, I'm a QSA, I've been a QSA for years, and, and it, it's an extensive and, and significant kind of uh, compliance model. But then we have things like cyber essentials, which had to be simple, so everybody could have you know, comply to it, but it became so simple they're just not effective. Do you think we're going to see a lot more complex uh, compliance coming out, not just here in the UK, but in Europe, obviously, with everything going on and across the world, to kind of deal with this problem with cybersecurity? Because we still have that kind of element within the business space and the government space, I'll be honest, which is, you know, do the minimum, do the minimum required, you know, to, to get what we need. But do you think governments need to wake up a little bit? I see a lot of people kind of advising them, but it's the same people. It's like, why don't you kind of get a good community of InfoSec people together to kind of advise you rather than just going for the, need I say it, some of the big integrators who may or may not have a problem recently, like a rather significant problem, and and kind of approach that way. Do you think they're they're still kind of living in a in the past a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's it's a complex landscape, I guess. Number one, but I think all all of the sort of regulation aspects they, they typically come around because there's a market failure of some sort. You know, having to wear a seatbelt uh, um, or whatever. You know, these are because people are not doing these things naturally. It doesn't come naturally to an organisation to uphold privacy. Maybe that's a bit of a conflict with their way of working and how they go to market. Maybe it's a bit of a conflict around um, cyber and investing in cyber because it's hard to measure and why should we do this sort of stuff. So there's definitely a market failure in in the sense of organizations maybe aren't naturally investing in sort of security and privacy technology. So we we do have regulation in a whole host of different areas. As you mentioned, there's specific things in financial services, things in, in IoT, um, the Internet of Things world as well, where there's often best practices. And I, I think historically, you're right, you know, compliance has been just that. N- number one, it's probably been owned by legal, which is an interesting sort of side swipe because they aren't necessarily interested in the technology. They're interested in making sure they are compliant and doing the bare minimum or perhaps at least having process in place to show the organization is on the right track to doing certain things. Does that ultimately make them more secure? 
probably not. It, it may result in some security controls being applied, but it's it's not really around the technology. It's more about a compliance piece of paper, I guess. So I think that that is difficult. I do think as well, there's often a gap between uh, regulation creation and the actual implementation of that within the real world. And that gap, as you say, how is that information being collected and captured? And I think like any regulation or any standard, collaboration is the key here. Collaboration around practitioners who are going to be um, implementing and those who will be auditing, those who will be actually creating and looking at a set of um, controls or um, steps which need to be adhered to. You have to have collaboration in those areas and really try to look at what's what we're really trying to achieve here. What, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? And for me, it'd be things like PR protection. It would be having a basic level of, I guess, maturity assessment around an organization to say, yeah, look, you know, we are level six in our cybersecurity model or whatever it could be. That would help everybody. That would help things like cyber insurance. It would help with CISO measurement. It would help understand where you should invest uh, you know, on your cybersecurity journey. So I think collaboration is key. I think, yes, we will just ultimately see more uh, regulation across the globe. I think it'll be, it'll start to filter down into very, very specific areas around financial services, uh, payment processing, internet of things is still very bit of a wild west really around how mm. uh, devices are built, maintained and, 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 and so on. I think we'll certainly see more around um, privacy and PII handling of, of, of end user data we have things like GDPR in Europe, CCPA in, in the US, California, and other parts of the US. So I see, I see that um, amplifying more. And I think we essentially need more people within industry, if you like, understanding the nuance of this stuff instead of it just being a, a thing legal, own, and complete. And then suddenly at the end of that, you get a load of red boxes because you haven't done something and you need to rapidly go and, go and achieve a, a tick box exercise. So it seems a little bit disjointed to me. And that's a really generic global sweeping statement, of course. But I think that most things for it to be successfully adopted and then add some value to both industry and to those who are regulating, you've got to have that collaboration circle in the middle, which needs to include specialists needs to include practitioners needs to include those who are actually mm. doing the work so i think once you get the right people around a table you, things become a lot easier i guess and mm. i think regulation that fails is is often done in isolation in a vacuum and it comes down the food chain with a big stick you have to go and do this stuff and most organizations will avoid that if they can if, if possible but i always have hope i do think cyber and privacy protection in general organizations see this as a good thing maybe how they get there is still a little bit in the air um, which is where maybe regulation can help but I, I, I see more. I see more regulation coming, not not less, I guess. Don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Right, I mean we're reaching the top of our time together and I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody and I've, I haven't told you about this or I might have alluded that there would be a question but Picture a young Simon Moffat just starting to come out of university, uh, looking around in the big wide world of 2001. You get that call, you pick it up. Would it be on a mobile? Probably just about. <laughs> and it's, you know, somebody saying, right, yeah, we've got you a play that placement, that first ever placement that you had. 
maybe you're sat in a bar somewhere in London thinking, you know what, I'm going to get a pint, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to enjoy this pint because I'm now getting into an area that I enjoy. If you could go down and sit next to yourself and give yourself a couple of pieces of, a couple of tips, a couple of pieces of information, obviously, you know, that would help you maybe either reverse some things in your career that you didn't like or just make things a little bit easier for yourself going forward, what would those be? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great one. That's a great like, letter to my 16-year-old self sort of thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I, hindsight, hindsight is wonderful, isn't it? I, it's, it's a great thing. I, I think um, there's a couple of things which I've sort of learned more recently, I suppose, in life and career. And I guess one is, is be agile. And, and I don't necessarily mean sort of agile software development, but I guess just be a little bit more light-footed. And by that, I mean, don't be too hard-coded to a particular way of thinking or maybe a particular industry or, you know, this, this particular tooling is the best ever or this particular way is the best ever. Be agile and, and, and respond to things. And I think it's the classic, you know, sort of Charles Darwin survival of the fittest. It wasn't really. It was, it was survival of those who changed best. And I think businesses that have, have had the most success, the, the pop artists who've had the most success are those who keep changing and innovating some Madonna and David Bowie or whatever, be, being agile and being able to just quickly sort of flip-flop a little bit. I think that, that's been quite an interesting way of, of thinking about technology or problems or careers is something will always come along and replace what you do or what you know, whether it's software or how you do something or whatever. The other sort of flip side to that is just try and be young and fun still. Try, try and pick the jobs which you like and you get a a bit of a bit of a smile out of what we do is yeah it, it's important at times but it's still only a career so i think it's important to to take it with a, a light-hearted view of the world have a bit of a laugh have a pint have a laugh to have a joke forget about it at the end of the day or the end of the week and start again on monday with a you know that fresh perspective and, and be agile always learn as well I, i'm a, a big fan of, of of learning stuff learning new things whatever it's learning you know via a manual or reading something or just chatting with people getting people's perspectives how are you doing something why are you doing it always be on the lookout for little little nuggets of information of some sort and you may not use that straight away but you will use it maybe at, at some point and that sort of drifts back into that being agile thing and being fleet of foot and being responsive filing it away for a later use absolutely, yes. absolutely. <laughs> another, another good one that i always heard it was Embrace uncertainty as well. I yeah. think it's a good one. So I like that one. Don't, don't, get, don't get too, you know, this is the way I've always done it and yeah. this is definitely the right way. Maybe, and quite rightly, you're probably going to be wrong at some point. You know, things change and your opinion is, is probably going to get outdated. So embrace that uncertain aspect and, and be agile and allow yourself to change, I think, is, is a good one. Adaption, yeah, and, and weirdly enough, that's one of the things that you know when I mentor people because I I do try to give back as much as possible, and and one of the things I do say to people is is you've got to have the ability to adapt because things change so quickly. One minute you're an advocate of this, and then all of a sudden, you know, new technology will come out which will completely change the the way of things. Or we get locked down and all of a sudden, you know, yes, there was some certain amount of working from home and the ability to work from home beforehand, but then all of a sudden, boom, no one's, you know, very few people comparatively are going back. And I mean, us as InfoSec people, you know, I think a lot of people miss, you know, 
maybe not misunderstand, but they don't quite understand how big a change that actually was for us with defence and depth. Because one minute we're just protecting a you know, a network environment in an office space somewhere in London or somewhere in New York or whatever with, yeah, strings out to various different solutions that were out there, you know, cloud technologies and stuff. And then, as you said earlier on, you know, now the front room and the kitchen in everybody's house suddenly became the office with wireless that we couldn't control. We didn't have anything to, to do with, you know, other devices on the same network that, feasibly could be doing all kinds of things and and it's interesting but no i like that Ad- adaption is 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 great i always like to ask that question i think so agile, yeah be, be young fun young fun and agile keep keep changing and uh, i think that way it, it keeps you interested and i think if you are interested you, you end up learning more and then you do a good job and you can you can give value back i think that's fair. absolutely absolutely so our time is coming to an end, Simon. Is there anything you want to kind of mention, any content podcasts, you, you have to quickly sort of mention where we can find you for the Cyber Hut, that kind of thing? Uh, well, it's great, great to be on. Um, th- thanks, to, thanks for having us on. It's been a good good, good chat for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the cyberhut.com is, is our sort of place of refuge uh, in there. There's, there's a whole host of free research and uh, information around, you know, cyber in general or identity and access management reports research and blogs we do a whole host of stuff we we give away for free to try and enable uh this this ever confusing landscape we live in we, we do a, a podcast ourselves called the week in identity and, and stuff on there but yeah the cyberhut.com is, is a good place to start you can find me on linkedin or you know simon at the cyberhut.com you can spam me if you like via email um but yeah i'd love to hear everybody's stories or just just reach out for chatting I will always respond to emails. It might take a while, but I I do get there in the end. Simon, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.